by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, welcome to another special episode of Well-Rounded. As part of our COVID-19 series, today's episode takes stock of where we are two weeks into the pandemic. Your hosts are Dan Arteaga and Isabel Rosenthal. Joining them is Dr. Carlos Del Rio, infectious disease physician and chair of the Department of Global Health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University School of Medicine. He also served as the executive director for the National AIDS Council of Mexico. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Keeping with our theme of trying to give our audience COVID-19 coverage, today we again will be discussing this topic with a guest that we're very excited to have, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who is a professor of global health and medicine at Emory University in Atlanta. Welcome to the show, Dr. Del Rio. Happy to be with you. So Dr. Del Rio, a lot has changed in the last couple of weeks. I think it's fair to say that everyone has been affected Um, Maybe we can start with a little bit of a summary about how exactly we got to where we are today. Well, I think it's interesting how very rapidly this has changed our world, right? But those of us that know about pandemics know that when something like this starts, it's likely to spread to other places. But I would say that, you know, the way that Chinese establish incredible, uh, you know, very harsh control measures, many of us said, well, they're going to be able to contain it there and it's not going to go far from there. But obviously, those containment measures were probably too little, too late, or maybe they were too much, but still too late. And at the end of the day, uh, the virus started spreading, and we started seeing cases, you know, in Japan, in South Korea, in, in Southeast Asia, and then rapidly moving to Europe. And I think now Europe is really the center of this this pandemic. And now we have uh, cases also here in the United States. And and how rapidly this has become an issue in the United States is hard to understand, right? In February 28th, we had uh, 14 cases in the United States. And granted, there was a lot of under-testing, but 14 cases detected. Today, we have over 6,000. And it's, it's less than less than three weeks away. So uh, the transmissibility and the way this virus is moving, it's, it's beyond anything we've ever seen. Yeah, I think we were all taken aback by how quickly this all happened. Um, Isabel sent me an email this morning about the number of inpatients that she has at her hospital with COVID-19. Um, it was more than I expected, I'll be honest. Yeah, no, and I think I think the uh, the healthcare system is, is, is really overwhelmed already. And I think we're just seeing the beginning. It's even going to be worse. So I think we're going to have to get creative. And, you know, when all of us said, you know, we're laughing a little bit and saying, you know, why are the Chinese building so many hospitals? And I still don't know how they did it, that they were able to build, you know, a hospital in 10 days. The reality is that they were right. You very quickly get your healthcare capacity exceeded, and you have to be very creative to come up with with ways to cope with it. And uh, this is this is not going to be easy. And you know, we don't know the answer, and we're making decisions with limited data. And quite frankly, we are we're really building the ship as we sail it. <laughs> so speaking of that, um, this morning, Imperial College London released an op- report with different projections based on different social measures that the U.S. could take. And there were some scary numbers in there um, in terms of fatalities. I think, you know, something like 4 million people would die if the U.S. did nothing and life went on as usual. What is your take on that report? So my take on that report, you know, like everything, it's it's a modeling report. And you, you have to take modeling, obviously, uh, with a grain of salt. You know, modeling is, is, is helpful to allow you to make some decisions, but it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. But having said that, uh, 
I think they could be very well on target. The, the predicts are all over the place. Again, as you said, if we do nothing, this could produce as many. I mean, people are talking about, you know, 100 million infections in the United States, you know, 5 million hospitalizations, about 2 million ICU admissions and about half a million deaths as a, a possibility. And, you know, it's not an unlikely possibility. So these are real numbers. And this is something that, again, should should make us all wake up. And quite frankly, I've been advocating to to shut down the country, right? We need to really take this seriously and not be playing around. But the reality is that we still have many people who are not taking it seriously. And that's a big problem, right? Yeah, of course. We have noticed that you've been very vocal about practicing social distancing and um, enforcing lockdowns on kind of non-essential travel. I guess, how realistic is it for us to expect to be able to slow the spread of COVID-19? And, you know, what do lockdowns really look like on a national level? So lockdowns at a national level would look like you close all non-essential buildings, right? You close restaurants, you close, close bars, you close uh, shopping malls, you close movies, you close events. You basically have people stay in their home unless you have to go out like like we do as physicians. And you enforce that for a good 30 to 45 days. And I think if you really establish social distancing in an effective way, you are going to bring the, the art knot down. And as you bring the art knot down, you are then going to start decreasing the number of new infections. For our listeners, do you mind briefly explaining what the R0 means in this case? So the R0 is a reproductive number and is the number of, of infections uh, after one case. So a case produces, in this case, we, we think this produces anywhere between two and a half to three new infections. So it has an R0 about two and a half to three, which means if you have an infected person, then that person leads to two and a half or three new infections. And that's why we see an exponential growth of this epidemic. And we have got to bring the R0 to less than one. Once you bring the R0 to less than one, epidemics stop. And how do you do that? You do it by decreasing the possibility of transmission. And decreasing the possibility of transmission means ensuring that people are not at a distance that they can transmit to each other. And that's only achieved through through social distancing. So, you know, and unfortunately, what I see out there is, you know, the president has said, well, you know, we shouldn't have meetings of, less, of more than 10 people. That's probably correct, but nobody's enforcing it. And the reality is restaurants are still ongoing and bars are still going. 80% of transmission comes from mildly symptomatic, undiagnosed individuals. So young people will go to bars and go to events and they, you know, even if they get sick, they don't really realize it, but they're transmitting to others and they don't know it. And, and therefore, it's going to be very hard to stop that unless we stop people from, from getting infected. So speaking of infection rates and testing um, and undiagnosed cases, there has been, and we have all been frustrated by the lack of available testing for patients with suspected COVID-19. What do you think went wrong? I think this is a new disease, and therefore there was no test available, right? So a test had to be designed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, very quickly, based on the, on the genetic sequences published of this virus, the CDC started developing a test, and, and they were developing primarily as a public health test. I don't think they were thinking to develop it as a diagnostic test to be used clinically. This is called something called laboratory developed test. I would say it's almost like it's a home brew. It's a home recipe. And therefore, it's not a very simple test. It has three primers. It has multiple issues. So, you know, when it started rolling out, it started having difficulties with false positives and false negatives. So they had to take it back and relook at it. And the reality is, you know, CDC is not a test developer. I think the mistake we made is we didn't go early on in the epidemic to the big companies. We should have gone in January knowing that this was going to spread globally. I mean, it's really nice to play, you know... Monday morning quarterback, yeah. (laughs) Monday morning quarterback. But the reality is, you know, we should have said, go to Roche and to Abbott, to the big diagnostic firm, say, look, this is going to be a problem. Start developing tests right now, right? Because now that 
Roche and others are developing tests, I think things are going to turn around. But the test developed by CDC was never intended, no, is it scalable for the need we have. And, and that's, I think, has been, the, I would say, the Achilles heel of our response is the lack of testing that we still have even today. Yeah, that's been frustrating for us. You know, we heard on the news that new guidance was that all you needed to get tested was a physician's order uh, and clinical suspicion. But I think that those of us that were working on the ground who were trying to get patients tested found that that was actually inaccurate information and that there was still a lot of triaging going on to determine who would actually get tested. Well, you know, the triaging is simply a way to, to ration, ration resources, right? I mean, that's what it is. And so now, well, the question I have for you is, now you know how people in developing countries li- live and, and, and mm-hmm. practice, right? Now you know how a developing country has right. to make a decision because they don't have access to a test and they're highly rationed and not available. And I have been in many places in Africa that you can't even get a sodium, right? Or you can't get a, a blood culture. So, you know, think about our lab capacity to testing as that of a developing country. And it's very frustrating. And I think all of a sudden this makes you realize what the luxuries we've been living with are like. Of course. Isabel and I were talking about a recent retrospective study from Wuhan that actually suggested that clinicians are actually much more likely than the general public to contract COVID-19, which makes sense because we're going to be exposed more often than the general public. But I guess what can we do to best protect ourselves and maybe even more specifically protect our loved ones from this virus? Well, so, so several things, right? We have learned all the coronaviruses like SARS, like MERS, like uh, now COVID-19, are very good at transmitting in healthcare settings. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Zhu, who was the chief epidemiologist at the, at the China CDC, he gave a talk about how we are in a situation where two people are at very high risk. And the people that are very high risk is, number one, the healthcare workers, and number two is the people that live, that live in households of other individuals. That's where the tra- most of the transmission is occurring. And I think it's important that we remember that because then we need to know that Transmission occurs in the household and transmits in healthcare settings. And there's a lot of transmission in healthcare settings. China had over 2,000 infected healthcare workers. So I think the first things that we have to do is, as healthcare workers, we have to be trained on doffing and donning our personal protective equipment. Uh, second, we have to use appropriately personal protective equipment. And third, we have to be incredibly alert about the challenges, right? Because patients can present with atypical presentations. And then you could go ahead and get infected unknowingly. So, I mean, if I had my way, I would make sure that every patient admitted in the ER without a diagnosis, we put a surgical mask on them to protect others from getting infected. And then we need to use protective equipment appropriately. But we're also seeing healthcare workers infected in the community. And I want to remind residents and others that, you know, we work hard and we also party hard, that this is not the right time to party hard because, <laughs> because you will go out, you know, you'll be tired, you'll go out to the bar, you will go out somewhere, and then you're going to get infected in the community. And, uh, and that's a risk that we're also taking. Of so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a reality that when an epidemic is, is in the community, you can get infected at both places. And that's very scary. Talking about appropriate protective equipment. So originally, the CDC said, you know, all healthcare workers should wear N95 masks. Then, you know, about a week or so ago, they said, well, you know, there's this national shortage. So, okay, you can wear surgical masks, but like there is this risk if you're doing a aerosolizing procedure. What are your thoughts on this move from N95 to surgical masks? Is that really safe for our clinical workers? You know, you're, you're rationing, you're making recommendations that are not best available because you're doing them based on what's available, right? 
And we've gone from best available to what's available. And that, I think, is a challenge. And we need to recognize that, that we are in a, in a crappy situation in which if we had everything available, we would do something very different. But since we don't have everything available, we're saying, we're saying things like, well, you know, there's a shortage of seatbelts, so drive your car and just be careful, you know, because there's no seatbelts. That's what we're yeah, telling you. that reminds people. me of something that I saw circulating online recently. Um, I don't know if either of you saw this, but there is a document providing guidance on how to connect multiple patients to the same ventilator that has been making rounds on the internet. I haven't seen it, but but that's exactly what I, I think, you know, I think those things will, will, will start to happen. But I, now I would tell you one thing, though, having said that, I don't think we need an N95 all the time. And I personally think that you need an N95 for sure for procedures that there's high degree of aerosolization. But, you know, to just go into the room, take care of a patient, I think this is not TB. This is not aerosolized. This is not floating in the air for hours. I think a good surgical mask, a well-put surgical mask, that plus goggles and, and gown and glove is sufficient. So uh, kind of in terms of other things that have been circulating in the clinical world, um, there has been some talk uh, sort of on Twitter and in clinical settings that viral load might matter. In every single infection, we know transmissible infection, viral load matters. So the higher your viral load, the more likely you are to transmit and the more highly you are to have rapid progression of disease. So do you think clinicians are at a higher risk of getting worse disease burden, given the fact that they're probably treating patients with higher viral loads? Uh, it's, it's a possibility. I mean, I think we, we don't fully understand what puts clinicians at such a high risk, whether it's a proximity to the patient. I mean, you know, when you're examining a patient, you're clearly you know, up close and personal. You're looking into their mouths. I mean, we do a lot of things that are, quite frankly, put you at high risk of transmission very quickly. So... We've we've covered a lot of topics that are relevant for, I think, a lot of clinicians who are going to be responding to this crisis. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how the pandemic is unfolding in Atlanta and what do you foresee happening kind of over the course of the next year? Well, you know, I think that what we're seeing in Atlanta is no different than what you're seeing in New York or another place in the country. We're seeing an increase in patients. We're seeing a lot of local transmission. I think, you know, Atlanta has the advantage of having a, a large international airport. It has a disadvantage of having a large international airport, right? There were a lot of flights coming from Korea, from, from Italy, from France, from other places, and all those people came, and now there's community transmission. So so locally, we're, we're really trying to do our best to enforce social distancing and promote mitigation. And I've been personally involved in, you know, in doing things, horrible things, like canceling the Final Four and canceling the NCAA tournament and asking that, you know, the symphony and the theater and the museums be closed and, and really trying to do whatever we can to enforce social distancing. And then the other thing we have to do is, is prepare our healthcare system. And we are working very hard in our different healthcare systems to rapidly scale up and to be ready. And it's, it's a struggle because you feel like, first of all, you feel like you're drinking, you're drinking water from, from a fire hydrant. But second, you know, you make progress and then, you know, it gets worse because one day you have eight, 10 patients, the next day you have 30 patients in the hospital, the next day you have 100 patients in the hospital. So again, it's an explosive epidemic. And as you have explosive epidemics, you have increasing number of patients coming in. Of course, of course. Um, I guess when it comes to our patients, I'm concerned. I know Isabel's concerned. And we're in America where, although we don't necessarily have as many smokers as there were in Wuhan, we do have a lot of patients who are obese. We have patients who have hypertension, who have diabetes, and we know that those are risk factors for serious illness when mixed with COVID. 
I guess, how, how much should we be worried about kind of the population here in America? And how should we be counseling them differently for their protection? You know, I think I would counsel, I counsel everybody they know over the age of 65, you know, especially with chronic illnesses to just stay home, don't leave. Mm -hmm. If you prevent infection, you are not going to get sick. So uh, you really need to do whatever you can to prevent infection. And that means not having family visitors and not having your grandkids over. But again, we have to decrease the number of people that get sick. We have been calling this in Twitter and other places, flattening the curve. We have to flatten the curve. You both are interns. If I said to you, you're going to have 30 admissions over the next month, what are you going to say? I can handle that, right? I, I hope so. But if I tell you, you're going to have 30 admissions over two days, what are you going to say? Are you kidding me? Uh, that's pushing the limit, yeah. Right. yeah I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it. Right. It's, it's the same number, right? It's the same number, but if we spread them out, you're going to be able to handle it. And, and that's what flattening the curve is all about. If we can spread the, the number of new infections, we'll be much better prepared to handle them than if we just have a, a surge of new infections happening all of a sudden. Of course. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Del Rio. This has been a really enlightening conversation. Do you have any f closing thoughts for our listeners who... Yeah, you know, I, I, think, I think there are two things. And I think, you know, research is always important. And, and, you know, we don't have a vaccine. We don't have treatments for this. But we have clinical trials that are happening. And I think today, New England Journal of Medicine published the results of the lopinavir study. And lopinavir ritonavir, that has been talked a lot about, it's, you know, it's a drug for HIV, has shown to be, have no impact on, on COVID-19. So it's, clinical trials are important when they give positive results and also important when they give you negative results because they tell you what not to do, right? Mm -hmm. And we're also conducting a clinical, several clinical trials with other drugs, including a drug called Rindesivir, who's just produced by Gilead. And the new, uh, in a vaccine study, and this has just begun, there's a vaccine developed by, by a company called Modena, in collaboration with the NIH, are starting a clinical trial. The phase one is starting. So, so if we have a power, is is a power of clinical research. And I think through clinical research, I'm confident we'll be able to find therapeutics and vaccines for this disease. And on that note, um, thank you so much, Dr. Del Rio. We know you're incredibly busy um, for taking the time to talk with us tonight. Thank you so much. Dan, is that a wrap? I think that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>